The Diecast Movie Podcast proudly presents James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reber Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast, and we're continuing our James Whale retrospective, talking about the man, the work, and the legacy. And we're continuing talking about his work in films. And um, today, tonight, we're going to be doing the Old Dark House. And I'm joined by filmmaker Ansel Farage, the director of Loon Lake, Will and Liz, and many other films. How are you doing today, Ansel? I'm good, Stephen. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And uh, I believe just recently, and when this comes out, it'll be probably the beginning of next year, of 2022, but I believe you already have out a new Blu-ray for Will and Liz, correct? Yeah. Uh, Will and Liz uh, is out on Blu-ray, actually right now. Um, I still get to see my copy, but um, it's on Blu-ray, and uh, it's got the commentary track with myself and Nathan Wilson and Christine Tucker. And some deleted scenes, and um, it, there's a couple more Blu-rays that are on the way. And uh, maybe by the time that this uh, uh, interview airs, um, one of them will probably be announced. So, uh, yeah, we're Holland's Productions on Blu-ray. <laughs> awesome, and I know, and Loon Lake is still available on Blu-ray, correct? Loon Lake is definitely still available on Blu-ray. Yeah, on special edition Blu-ray. And, uh, and listeners know we, um, Ansel and I did an interview last year. We talked about these films. So if you're interested to learn more about them, go back to that interview. But I recommend both movies. One is a, um, a horror film, and the other one is um, a, rom- a romantic drama. And so they're two totally different types of movies, um, which I, I like because I like when directors branch out and do different things, which is similar to what James Whale has done in his career. Mm-hmm. Very true. I'm not comparing you to James Whale because, you know, we have to see more years go by to get the whole entirety of the work. But I like it when directors don't just get stuck in a niche. <laughs> right. I, I don't like to, um, to to peg myself down to one particular film genre, film style. And, uh, yeah, there's just this, there's too many stories you got to tell. Not all of them need to be horror. So that's my two cents. Oh, I agree with you. And, um, when I asked you what film you wanted to do with me for the James Earl retrospective, you picked the old dark house without hesitation. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Yeah. Um, I, uh, well, I guess as we can de- dive into it, uh, one of the reasons why it's, uh, I come from kind of a crazy family. So there's a lot that I sort of, um, that I, that I, uh, I connect to and can relate with, with the, with the, the mad femme family and uh i don't know i've always just sort of been drawn to the um to this movie and the atmosphere and uh, the stormy night and uh and also it's, it's one of the more ones that you know everybody loves bride of frankenstein and uh, they should love the invisible man if they're worth their salt and uh the old dark house doesn't really get as much love in my opinion so that was my 
that was my choice. Plus, also, I really haven't seen um, James Whale's other work, The Kiss Before the Mirror, has just come out on Blu-ray, and I would still love to see One More River and Journey's End and um, uh, The Way Back, um, but uh, those aren't as readily available. So the old arc has to in. Yeah, Journey's End, um, true information, as listeners will know, from the, it was the second episode of our James Earl retrospective. The first one is an interview of James Curtis about the man, and our first movie was Journey's End, which is on YouTube. So you can, it's the only way to find it, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. We need a Blu-ray. There, we need a Blu-ray. Oh, I, I 100%, 100% agree with you, and um, there was an episode I did with um, Troy Holworth and uh, – we talked about that they should come out with James Whale collection. Mm-hmm. And and that way everything could be out there in one nice, easy to find, easy to, easy to grab, um, purchase, you know, and, and, and I, I support that, but I sadly just can't see that happening. Not with how studios are. And it would be nice. I would love for Kino Lorber to put out a box set of that, but um, I can't see universal parting with their universal monster titles and making a deal with, uh, Warner Brothers for Waterloo Bridge and all that, but uh, that would be that would be ideal, wouldn't it? It would be, and and it doesn't have to include the Universal. It could be all the other ones because the obviously that would right. be the hardest hurdle to get over would be the Universal whole, um, hurdle. But I mean, it, it, it's and that's why I've been loving about this retrospective series and seeing these different movies of his because really going into this, all I knew was Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and the Invisible Man you know, going right. into it. And then to be exposed to the um, amount of content that he did, Showboat, Journey's End, Waterloo Bridge, and all these ones, um, the great Garrick. It's it's amazing all this different work that he accomplished in a very short yeah. period of time. And, yeah. it's, and I'm starting to notice certain trends in his movies. Like, because every, every director – has a certain style, whether they know it or not. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's been amazing. But I got I'm going to be honest with all the listeners. I've I owned the I owned the Blu-ray of the old Dark House that came out, um, the Cohen collection. Correct. Correct. And it was the first time I ever seen the old Dark House was for this review. I never had seen it before. Huh. All right. That's interesting. Um, I I saw this. Um, I mean, my introduction to the old dark house was when I was a kid uh, through Kevin Brownlow's documentary Universal Horror, and, uh, and it showed a couple clips. And um, I knew, I mean, obviously the title tells you it's about an old dark house, and I knew that uh, James Whale loved Hal Lenny's film The Cat in the Canary, and uh, and I I had it took me a while to finally seek that out as a kid, but I finally saw Cat in the Canary before the old dark house, so I had in my mind a rough idea of what to expect with the film. It took me a couple years until I finally uh, rented, actually, the Kino VHS of the old Dark House that was taken from a really battered uh, 16-millimeter uh, print that Curtis Harrington, thank God for Curtis Harrington, by the way, uh, Curtis Harrington um, discovered in the 60s. So it was a really muddy and grainy, uh, and in hindsight, very atmospheric print that the, the VHS was taken from. And I really didn't know what the hell to make of it as a kid. It wasn't it wasn't the quote-unquote haunted house movie that I had envisioned in my head. I really, I don't think I actually enjoyed it that much when I first saw it, because I, I just didn't quite know what to, what to make of it. But um, 
the imagery kind of stuck with me and mostly the mood and the the rain and the sound of the winds and um especially later on in the middle of the film when they're just hanging out and just sitting by the fire and just that cold dreary feeling and i kept thinking about that like in in when i was in school and in class and just dreaming about that i'm like you know what i kind of need to see this movie again so i i got the v i bought the vhs from suncoast i did i remember um i think i was like in the fifth grade and i did a, a james whale universal monster marathon weekend i just frankenstein bride grizzle man in the old dark house and i really lo- loved it then and then i was that became like a, a go-to october movie um after that and then cohen just like that 4k restoration just makes it beautiful it like sparkles and it's so crisp and it's so not how that vhs used to look that's that's my introduction to the old dark house which i don't think was a question you even asked me but i volunteered anyway <laughs> Well, no, I mean, really, because it, it it shows the love you've had for this film for um, quite a while. I mean, pretty much most of your life, you've enjoyed the old dark house. And for me, way older than yeah, you, yeah. it's a, it's a recent watch. So I, that's what I love about doing the reviews with my children is that sometimes it's a movie I've seen many times and they've never seen it, or on occasion they they it's a movie they've seen quite a few times and I'm surprised with it, you know, and. Uh, I think that's the great right. thing about talking with people that love cinema is you always will learn mm-hmm. something to add to your watch list, which as I'm sure yours is like oh, yeah. mine. It's never ending. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, yeah. And you'll never, uh, there's just too many movies and not enough time. <laughs> and that's why people are always surprised. Like you haven't seen this. It's like, do you know how many movies are out there? And you know, it, there's t- a tremendous amount. And sometimes you'll, it'll be in the back of your mind to watch this movie I mean, I purchased it, but I was waiting to watch it as maybe one of the die rolls. And um, and then when I decided to, to go into this James Whale retrospective, I said, this is perfect. I got the movies. I, you know, I'm ready to go. And, right. and it's amazing where this is branched out into. Um, but if you want to g- give um, the listeners a quick synopsis of what happens in the movie. In the old accounts, um, Raymond Massey, and Melvin Douglas and Gloria Stewart are traveling through Wales one very stormy night, and uh, they're almost uh, knocked off the road by a mudslide and are trapped and come across the old, this old dark house carved into the mountainside, pretty much. And uh, it is owned by the enigmatic and insane Femme family, Roderick Femme, Horace Femme. I can't remember all the, all the characters' names. We don't have to name them all. Just yeah, you know, uh, we're just Morgan doing... the Butler, which is uh, yeah, yeah, and Morgan the Butler, which is Boris Karloff, and um, they ask for shelter and they're let in, and then uh, Charles Lawton and uh, his uh, female friend show up, show, uh, Gladys the showgirl, and uh, she starts a relationship with Melvin Douglas. We find out that there's an insane brother who's a pyromaniac locked upstairs, and uh, their brother, or I'm sorry, their father, who is uh, 102, and he's played by Elspeth Dudgeon, who is only like a, a 65-year-old uh, actress in drag, which I always think is a nice touch. Madness ensues at the end, and then uh, the storm passes, and Ernest Thesiger wishes us all a, a happy morning, and <laughs> it's over. <laughs> And it pretty much tells everybody what you know what to expect, and it's uh, it set the trend for so many of these types of movies. 
that followed yep. up with them. It, this was this was the template, which is something I've noticed, like with Frankenstein and other films that James Whale has done. He has set the template for so many different horror things that are still going on to the present day. Yep, exactly. The first thing I wanted I wanted to talk about with this was that I, I, the movie is based on the 1927 novel *Benighted* by J. B. Priestley. Yeah, and yeah. um. I found that I yeah. was researching this, and now I want to find the book if it's still out there. I'm sure, hopefully somewhere, and read it because I heard that the movie and the book are very close. Um, there's only differences. There's more With the comedic elements the in the movies. Yeah. Oh, the, oh, the, the ending's the, different. The end is different. Yeah. Um, I mean, do I spoil anything, or do we care at this point? Or... <laughs> well, well, the movie. Well, this, yeah. this, when this comes out, it'll be the 90th anniversary the of the movie. <laughs> It's a, uh, Melvin Douglas's character does not survive in the book, but he makes it in the film. Um, and I, I'm happy that he makes it in the film. Because uh, I think after all of the, the dark humor, it's good that there's still a, a happy ending, a satisfactory ending. But yes, I, I have not read the novel either. I, I've been interested in it uh, myself. But, uh, you know, I, I'm going to get off track, but it's still to do with uh, James Whale. A property that I would love to uh, actually, I have a copy of it, but I would love to mess with one day or do a version of is the man with red hair, which uh, he did on stage with Charles Lawton, as played uh, Charles Lawton played James Whale's father, and James Whale was this mute, half dead, uh, half dead son of Charles Lawton, mm-hmm. and um, I, I read that about ten years ago. I have it saved on a hard drive somewhere because um, I, I was. I don't know how I, I was just very into like the old dark house and that sort of James Will brand of comedy. I believe I was actually prepping um, the happy home of the murderous Mahomes at the time. And I, I, I came across that, uh, the play, which I, I liked, but no, I've not read the old dark house and all the night is. Yeah. That's I mean. I'm curious to, to seek it out now to, um, like I said, do a compare and contrast and just, just to get those differences. But I do notice that whale has some regulars. You know, it's one of those things. Like the writers, Ben Levy oh, yeah. did Waterloo Bridge. R.C. Sheriff did The Invisible Man, you know, with him. And also he did Goodbye, Mr. Chips. And both of them did other work, too. I'm just highlighting. But I noticed, like, right. he has a certain tendency to try to use the same people. Because obviously, I mean, you as a director would know, as a filmmaker, oh, yeah. it's nice when you know everybody has that quick shorthand. You can trust and rely upon your, uh, your team, definitely. Especially when they know what you're looking for, and that's very important when you come to the cinematography, which is breathtakingly set up with the shadows and everything else. That, yes, especially in especially so. Yes. Yeah, Arthur Edson, uh, and, Edison, and also the, amazing. Yeah, and and the set design on that film too, which is the the staircase, and uh, and also they reuse that set in um, the Vampire Bat with Lionel Atwell and Faye Ray and uh, Dwight Fry and Melvin Douglas again the same year. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's such a wonderfully atmospheric, moody chiller and, and one of the, I think, one of the best uh, 30s universal horror, if you really want to call it a horror film. It, it is, but it isn't under the greater umbrella term universal horror. Oh, I agree. And when you look at the cinematography, um, you, you've seen other whale films, as you said, like Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man. And the cinematographer, Arthur Edson, was the, Frank, the cinematographer for Frankenstein and The Invisible Man. 
So did you do, are you noticing certain trends that Whale likes to do with these films? Well, I mean, obviously his love of German expressionism comes through, uh, especially in the old dark house, the shadows and the high angles and the flickering candlelight, um, which, again, harkens back to The Cat and the Canary and uh, Paul Lenny's uh, films. I mean, really, all his four, his four uh, gothics, they're all German expressionism. So it pains me to say that I can't, I can't like, think of specific shots for each four films and be like, oh, here's the, uh, here's the connecting tissue in, in his cinematography offhand. But, um, uh, I mean, just speaking myself as a director, I don't know, there's, there's certain, there's certain setups and certain compositions that you subconsciously do. And I, I feel like I'm not even able to answer this question. I'm sorry. Well, that's okay. I mean, I was just trying to get an idea from those particular films. I'm noticing, and for listeners, when we record these things, They'll, they'll be coming out in one order, the order that they're released. They came out in the cinema, but we were, we're recording them in a different order. So I'm seeing some films, his later work. So if I repeat myself and you hear later on, I'm sorry. But one of the and things. If I say something that's incorrect, it's because I'm prepping a film and my head is not exactly in <laughs> James Whale, Universal Horror Land. It's in the middle of production insurance. So <laughs> that's my excuse. <laughs> Well, you know, it is what it is. It's it's. But I've I've noticed one thing with with Whale, and because he's a different cinematographer, so I'm thinking it's more. You know, if it's just the same cinematographer, you would always wonder if is is it him or the cinematographer. But the camera is in most of his movies that I've seen is always moving. You know, mm-hmm. it's, there's a lot of movement going on, and yeah, and, fluidity in the in the shots, yeah, and which is amazing for early 30s work you know that a lot of this stuff has that movement in that and i think that's that's one of the constants i noticed it's it starts off especially when you get to the like the invisible man and so on and when you get the showboat it really is amazing with some of the shots that they do yeah 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 Yeah, he's totally responding showboat i i have uh, i've got the criterion blu-ray i mean he's totally responding to the music with that one And, and not only in terms of uh you know, actually, something that I can, I feel like I can discuss a little bit more is James Whale's um, style of editing. The way that he cuts a picture um, is really fascinating to me, and his choices of of angles and when to cut to a wide, when to cut to a master, when to like obscure information, picture information from the audience, and then reveal it to us. His, you know, his jig, sort of, I don't want to call it like a jigsaw uh, structure, the way that he edits, but just. Um, something that that always sticks with me in my head this is from frankenstein but um when we are introduced to may clark and john bowles uh the first four shots of the film or or the scene is i think it's a a shot of may clark and then a shot of the maid coming in in close up and then john bowles comes in in close up and then it's a cut back to may clark in close up and then it's a cut to a wide angle and we finally see where we're at and what's going on and, and get a context of, of the scene. And that, like, it's just like, it's a subconscious thing, again, of just like hooking the audience and, and getting them to try to like piece information together and keeping them engaged in the story rather than simply just starting the scene of here we are, we're in the study and she's by the fire and he walks across the room because she's distraught. And uh, that's a very 
bland and very, you know, flat uh, scene introduction. But the way that he cut it is always like it sticks with me. And um, and he does very other like similar things in um, in the old dark house with, with okay a, case, a, lo- a scene that I love is when um, the sister his name is not his, I believe it's Rebecca unless that might be the dead. There's the sister, and she's speaking with Gloria Stewart in her bedroom, and we do all these cuts. Gloria Stewart is thinking about the, the monologue that she's just said, and and the, the storm is building, and, and we're seeing reflections of the mad sister in the mirror, and then shots of Boris Karloff montage together, and just the way that he cuts these these uh, these scenes that I've always kind of enjoyed. Well, that mirror scene is amazing because it's it's um it's almost like one of those fun house mirrors because the mirror is kind of like not exactly straight on certain spots and distorts. And then she's seen Rebecca in those different spots and it's, it's freaking her out in the storm. And it's, it, it's, it's really good how it, how it was all set up. And one of the things I've noticed with his editing and, and I think film, some filmmakers are losing this in some aspects in that, he was merciless with cutting. And I've said this in other ones too. People are going to hear this again. He was like merciless. He was just, he wanted to keep things moving that ebb and the flow, the ebb and the flow. As long yeah. if it didn't fit the story or if it was taking too long and taking people out of the story, he would cut it out. It seemed like in my mind. Yeah. And I, I just, I think a lot of filmmakers nowadays, it's like the big budget ones. They're just, there's a lot, there's so many times I see a film. It's like, I enjoyed it, but it could have cut it 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And, I think, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's, uh, I'm, I like that. You always want to leave the audience wanting more than, than yeah, overstaying your welcome. I agree. Uh, I, I mean, well, also movies back then, they were just, they were a different, uh, I mean, the, it was a totally different world and market, you know, a, a 70 minute film was sufficient enough because you could get two or three films on the, pro, or two films on the program and a newsreel and short subjects and cartoon and all that. So you you didn't have the uh, I mean he cut Bride of Frankenstein down from ninety five minutes to uh, seventy six minutes or something like that. Um, you just didn't have the uh, the luxury, especially with these horror programmers that were frowned upon to to do an epic in the sense of Gone with the Wind and take your time with it. Um, you know. Oh yeah, I agree. And but I, I mean I'm just saying is it's, it's amazing. I I, I think with certain stories you just want to keep things moving. And I'm not saying I don't like movies that are longer in time. I think if the movie's paced well and it and has a story to tell that is two and a half hours, three and a half hours long, you don't notice it. But if it could be a half hour short and if it was only supposed to be 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you stretched it to a half hour. It's like the longest half hour of your life. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So it's, it's, it's to me, whatever is appropriate for getting the story across. And that's going to vary from individual to individual. And I'm just, it's my personal thing. You know, I, I like things that move along, but I don't mind having um, pieces that they don't have to be action. It just has to be where, where things are happening at a nice clip. Right. Now the cast is just amazing. You know, when you look at the, when you look at the, the people that were in this film, this, this, you know, it, and, and no one particular character is, is put higher than there. It was a total ensemble. Of type yeah, cast. But, um, Boris Karloff, 
is, is you know, obviously the one everybody thinks of when they think of the old dark house as Morgan. And mm-hmm. what, what, you know, I, I was able to talk about him in Frankenstein, which, which came out prior to this episode. But I mean, what, what can you say about Boris Karloff? In the old dark house? I mean, you know, I'm, if I'm honest, the character, the actor that stands out in my head when I think of the old dark house is immediately Ernest Thesiger. Like he, Boris Karloff is fine. I mean, he doesn't really have much to do in the film. He lumbers around and pursues May, um, Gloria Stewart at one point. Um, I think the, the final scene where he's weeping over Saul it just shows what a, what a gifted actor he was. And, and uh, when, you know, given the, the moment, to, uh, to play what he could bring. But to me, it's not a Karloff film at all. It's an Ernest Thesiger film. Um, I mean, it is an ensemble piece. Charles Lawton owns just as much of it as Melvin Douglas owns mm-hmm. it. Yep. But Ernest Thesiger stands over everybody uh, in that film. Like, that's his movie. <laughs> oh, I agree. And, and just before we move on to Ernest, um, Jack Paris's makeup was just excellent, you know, for Morgan. And I always, there's, I always love the scene where he's chasing Gloria Stewart. There's there's one spot of that scene where he gives that look and has that little um, leech's smile where, you know, it's like, Oh, and it's because it was all the makeup on. He was able to get across because he can't speak. And he was able to get across exactly what his intentions were to any, you know, to anybody. And it was, I thought it was, you know, right. It's it's not a big part. And that's always find it interesting, you know, because nowadays everybody's like, it's Forrest Karloff, but it's, it's a supporting role and um, a non-speaking part, right. but he did an excellent job with it. And there were some, there were some excellent acting going on in this movie. And let's go to, let's go to Horace Femme, Ernest Thessinger. You know, I mean, it's just, yeah. oh man. Ernest <laughs> that was, I mean, it was my first yeah, time he, seeing it. He was amazing. <laughs> he, he owns it. He owns that movie. It's, he's, he's got some great lines and, and it's just, uh, I yeah, there's just there's so many so many great moments from him, and, and just the look that he gives people, and and uh, I love when he when he uh, throws the flowers into the fire, and uh, <laughs> it was funny because listeners don't know it's like he, he he finds these flowers that are sitting on the chair, and he goes, oh my, my sister is arranging these, and he tosses them into the fire. <laughs> yeah, that's like. And that's something that I would totally do. <laughs> I, just, I, I like his character a lot, and uh, he makes me laugh. I mean, that's the point of the character, and he gives it his all. Uh, yeah, it's his film. I, I already said it. It's his film. Um, and uh, him and his sister, like, I really shouldn't say this, but sometimes I think about when I'm going to be far older, and I'm like, oh God, is that gonna be me and my sister? We're just sitting at the dinner table, like insulting each other, and you know, my sister can't hear, and she's all all that, all the stuff that he does, and I just I think about that a lot, and I laugh. It, it, I feel it, like it, this is the worst interview I've ever given. I'm so sorry. Well, this isn't an interview. <laughs> We're talking about the movie, so. <laughs> <laughs> We'll have you back. We'll have you back again soon for another interview when, you know, we just, could you, could you, but actually we forgot to mention this. You did recently win a Rondo. I did. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, actually, I mean, it's not just me. It really deserves, it belongs to, to 
to Jerry Lacey and Nathan Wilson as much as it belongs to me because without them, I wouldn't, uh, I, uh, we wouldn't have, have one. Um, but yes, I uh, received Best Short Film for uh, The Thousand and One Lives of Dr. Mabuza uh, after, I think, nine nominations in the past. Uh, I, I, uh, I scored one, and that was very nice and, and uh, very humbling. Uh, to be recognized by the Classic Horror Film Board, especially I've been, I've been reading that message board since uh, since it existed. I'm as old as that message board. It was uh, it was very nice. It was very honoring to um, to be recognized. It was well deserved. And, yeah. and for listeners, don't worry. It'll be. I'm sure um, when I have Ansel back sometime next year because he's got some he's got so many things in the hopper that'll be coming out, and then um, we'll have him back to talk about these different films and, and get an idea of what's going on. Rebecca Femme. Even I don't know what's going on in my own life. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should talk to Nathan Wilson and, and find out what's he going on. I don't know what's going on either, man. <laughs> well, uh, Jerry Lacey always knows what's going on. Or he plays it. it, it he or, has to. He's Dr. Mabuza. Yeah. So He's it's, got to. So I, I can always got to keep track. If I can ever get the t- chance to talk to him, he he's probably the one that knows the whole plan. He, he's just doling it out to you bit by bit. Yeah, yeah. Although I actually, I can already hear Jerry's response, and it's very off color, so I won't repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> but even uh, more, yeah. as Rebecca the Femme, it was is interesting. Like you said, the, the dy- dynamic between the brother and the sister um, mm-hmm. going through, and, and I thought this movie had a lot of interesting things with dynamics because she's very religious, he's not oh, yeah. very religious, and also there's. Oh, yeah. So it was brought up, but I, but I like the way it was brought up. It was not brought up in a way where it sided with one side or the other. It was just no. It's very insulting, and my sister was on the verge of thanking her gods for all the bounty that we received, and like that whole speech he gives at the dinner table. It, again, I, I'm like, oh, that's me and my sister in thirty years. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. <laughs> I guess your sister. Now, I guess well, you know what I know. You know what you're doing in 30 years. You just don't know what you're going to be doing production wise during that time. Yeah, and I'm gonna lock my sister up in the attic too. That's where she should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, if she listens to this episode, she's already going to be plotting against you. So be careful. Uh, yeah. Well, we won't go there. <laughs> like I said, she'll be locked up. <laughs> But there's a lot of comedic elements taken from them, you know. I mean, it's but with her character, I've one of the things I've noticed is in James Whale's movies, he seems to he'll seem to have a female character, typically female character, that's a that's played a little more over the top. Oh yeah, and that's um, his love of camp. I mean, you yeah. can't deny the the love of camp. I mean, Ernest Bessinger is a, a prime example of camp. But uh, but a female Gorgon, uh, Grand Guignol, or even if you want to dare you call it drag queen character, um, I mean Una O'Connor and uh, Bride of Frankenstein and Invisible Man is a uh, is I mean she's the the uh, the, the threshold for, for that type of James Whale uh, female female um, I don't want to say stereotype but. Uh, what, what would be the what would be the word, Stephen? What's the adjective that I cannot think of right now? I'm not sure, but I do know it, in Waterloo Bridge, which was his second film, 
the yeah. landlady in Waterloo Bridge was that type of character. And um, so, it, so it started even prior to them, and it's just something that yeah. he probably did in his theater background. I'm just guessing, you know, and uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. and it's just something he carried over. And, uh, and it, 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 depending on which way you look at things, various degrees of success. <laughs> because some oh, yeah. it, everybody has a different everybody has fl- different taste for um for different characters and i know like uno connor's you brought her up is, is is one of those ones that are very polarizing with fans of certain movies to, to how far she went even more well, i i never understand i'm like bring it i love that like you know go for the go for the the, the fully i mean i don't know if you've just listened to the Half you know thirty minutes of me rambling. You should know by now. I, I like the, the crazy and the, the more more over the top. And I think that her performances in those two movies are fantastic. Oh, I agree um, with you. I'm just letting I'm just letting listeners yeah. know that I'm just want to say to them like they're they're you know yeah it, no I'm I'm also commenting on that on that divisive divisive attitude towards her her portrayal, which I myself don't understand. I think it's like that's part of the charm. Like that's part that's why we enjoy these these. Uh, these pieces i think oh yeah i I, i'm you know there's there's certain things that are that are really good and there's certain things but i talk about those in those movies (laughs) now we've 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 talked about a lot of the supporting more supporting part of the ensemble but we hadn't gotten to the main like crew so to speak the ones that everything's happening to or around and um let's let's start off with um the big crew melvin douglas Penadrill or, or Penderill. Um, Pendril. Pendril. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, for those wondering, he's been in he's I been mean, tons and films. tons of movies. HUD being there. I mean, he he has a huge um yeah. cat a list. Filmography. Oh yeah. So I thought I thought he did a really good job, you know. I mean he was he was set up to be the um the heroic character for one of the characters, you know, and that kind of stuff and uh, Right. The disillusioned hero, yeah. What did you What did you I, think I, of? That's him? a great, actually, a great exchange between him and Ernest Bessinger, where Ernest Bessinger says, "I give you illusion," and he goes, "Oh wait, I I am, I can understand this toast. I've been through it." And he's referring to the the horror that he's witnessed in World War One and how he's now fully disillusioned with the world and the world state today. And uh, I mean, that's one of his early performances, and, and uh, before he becomes Melvin Douglas as we later know him in, in the films you mentioned and in, in things like uh, Mr. Blanding builds his dream house and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. I mean, everybody in the cast, like, like, am I really going to sit here and be like, I didn't like their performance. No, they're all, they all are perfect. They all fit exactly those roles that they're portraying. Um, James Whale was a, a master at casting. There's nobody, they all work so well together in, in this ensemble and, and uh, they all sort of need each other to balance out the more extreme material uh, that they're playing. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. We're not, I'm not saying any of them are bad. I'm just, I just want to give, you know, give them a few, you know, give them some, a little, a little chance in the limelight because for some of them, they are in other films that we're talking about during this retrospective and, and, and other films that will probably be coming up in future episodes of depending on how the dice get rolled. Um, right. Raymond Massey as Philip Waverton. When this episode comes out, we would have reviewed Arsenic and Old Lace. Uh-huh. Very um, good. Very and good. um and, and what can you say? I mean, it's just 
he he was also Abe Lincoln in Illinois, and he was in like a, again his filmography page is huge. You know, he's got a lot of different films, but you know, he plays your more typical um, tough guy hero. Yeah, I yeah, he's he's uh, assertive. Assertive is a good word I'd I'd say about his character in the film. Yeah, Melvin Douglas is he's got more to chew on, but uh, but he's a but Raymond Massey is a good um, support for for Gloria Stewart as her as uh, as his uh, wife. Oh, I agree, but I think it's nice to have the that, that um Melvin Douglas's character and Raymond Massey's character being um different in that way you know one is more the straight laced you know this is the job we got to get done the other one also is going to get the job done right. but he's going to do it in a little more humorous way fashion, yes right. yeah and i like that buddy that, that, that like, like that that buddiness of them you know it's, it's almost like it I, I wish it would be nice to have seen a movie with just those two characters going off to do something i think it would i think their interplay would have been interesting <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put put them in a and instead of Abbott and Costello, put them in another monster movie where they got to deal with Bella Lugosi this time. Or I was thinking maybe like um, Bing Cosby and Bob Hope or whatever, you know, where it's like you just just send right. them somewhere. Though they're not as humorous as those two, but just it it it'd just be interesting to see what would have count, you know, those two actors, you know, going out there and doing that type of stuff. Right, right. right. Now Gloria Stewart. You know, again, like we said, she does. I mean, you know, she gets to play the role of um, really the person who gets to be like the, more of a scream queen in this film. She does most of the Correct. screaming, and um, the Invisible Man, Rebecca on Sunnybrook Farm, and of course everybody remembers her from not nowadays from Titanic. You know, right. and uh, you know she she's been in a few, a couple of um, James Whale's films, and I think you know she does. You know, like we said, an excellent job. I mean, she, she for the role that she was given, and that mirror scene, she pulls that off, I think, rather well. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I, I mean, uh, that I mean that is her standout scene with, with Rebecca Femme, Eva Moore. I also just the way that she she looks in that movie. I think she's actually more, and that's probably so on on James Whale. Uh, James Whale purposely did that pro, uh, with making her more. Attractive, I think it's the word, uh, in this than she is in The Invisible Man. I think she's just stunning in this movie, uh, especially when she's got on the white uh, dress and, and is running around. and She, she looks great in this movie, man. <laughs> well, she looks good, but I have to, I have to be honest with you. Um, Lillian Bond, who played Gladys slash Perkins. Um, uh-huh. The showgirl. Yep, is more my type than than the um, Gloria Stewart type. So, but everybody's got you know. <laughs> I'm from LA. <laughs> I'm from the East Coast. You know, it's. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know. Well, it, it works out well if you if you and I if you and I were two bachelors out there and and at a bar and and, the, and these two ladies were there, we'd obviously it, we would have a. A good, you know, we wouldn't be fighting over who we would try to see, you know, who would want which one of us. You know, we'd be like, oh, you want her? I want uh-huh. her. And hopefully it would all work out where they would would, would go out with us too. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, she, I mean, she's, she's the more tragic 
romantic character. I mean, Gloria Stewart is the damsel in distress who looks fantastic throughout the film. But Lillian Bond has more um, emotion and more to chew on with uh, with Melvin Douglas, and she's she's very fine in the part. She's very she's very good. I mean, again, everybody is is they do their job um, very admirably. All of them in this film. Oh, I agree. And with with her, I also felt she was typical of what we call the final girl now with like the toughness, you know, where she's more willing to go into the danger and like, like somebody tries to hold her back. She sees it's going around them. It's like, I'm going in, you know? And so so I like that toughness that was shown in her character, you know, and then she was able to portray it and get that through the contrasting with Gloria Stewart's character. You know, which is played right. where where she's more. I need protection. And, and yeah, and I think that goes to the classes that everybody's representing, and and how they're used to these different upbringings. Where with Perkins' character being a chorus girl and having more to struggle, more to fight for things, and I think maybe uh, Margaret's character was more aristocratic and not having to do as much of that dirty work. I think that was just, you know, from their upbringing, that different way of handling stuff. Right. And and speaking of class, Charles Lawton. I saved him for last for a reason. He He's one of my favorite actors. In his American debut in this film, yeah. Sir William Porterhouse. I mean, mm-hmm. my one of my favorite version of Dr. Moreau, The Island of Lost Souls. Yeah. Mutiny on the Bounty, uh, and again, tons of other stuff. I mean, uh, Witness for the Prosecution is, I think, my favorite. Billy oh. Wilder's film, Witness for the Prosecution, also with Una O'Connor in a brief role, and Elsa Lanchester. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Charles Lawton was. was uh, I mean, if we're, we're going to get me going about Lawton, the first thing I'm going to say is the greatest shame that we've ever experienced cinematically is that he only directed one film, The Night of the Hunter and was so devastated by the viciously scathing reviews that it received that he never directed again. And we really lost, I think, some cinematic masterpieces because of that. But yeah, Charles, I mean, he's, again, funny, and he owns the part, and uh, just, uh, yeah, he's he's an ideal whale uh, cinematic alter ego. If I remember correctly from talking with um, James Curtis and the listeners, mm-hmm. if, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm misremembering, just go back to the interview with, with James Curtis that came out of October in 2021, and you can hear um, what, what exactly was said. But if I remember him saying correctly, this was the first movie that was Charles Lawton was in in America that was directed because James Earl brought him, but because of a contract – it had to go out after this other movie done by another group. So technically it was the second movie, but it, he was, this movie was completed first. <laughs> right. He shot this one first. Correct. Yep. And, yeah. and if it wasn't for James think, Whale uh, bringing him over and, and knowing him, it, he would never have been in this role. And this is, this is before really anybody knew like in America, Charles Lawton. Well, I think he had just won the Academy Award for the private lives of Henry VIII. So he was, he was no, I mean, maybe I'm screwing that, but I believe that he had already won because that was an English production, but this was his first American shot film. 
Um, and, and he, he does yeah. The Private uh, Life of Henry VIII, he won Best Oscar, um, the Best Actor in 1933. Okay. And this is yeah, 32. 32, I screwed up that day. Yeah. And I screwed up that day. Damn it. <laughs> And it came, and, and Private Life of Henry Dave came out in '33. So it's, okay. I'm I'm looking at his IMDb. I don't have but, everything stored in my head then. But you, but hey, you knew he won the Academy Award <laughs> for Best Actor. I, hey, yeah, but, I mean, good for something somewhere. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying. I mean, uh, you pulled that out, of, uh, and you were only off by one year. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pissed about that one year, man. <laughs> It's, but I mean, but but just going back to 1932, you know, just looking at the right. old dark. He did Devil, Devil in the Deep, in America. Then the old Dark House, then a couple other films, and then um, the last movie in 1932 that came out was Island of Lost Souls. I mean, yeah. And the very next movie he did, the first that came out in 1933, was The Private Life of Henry VIII. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty good record right there. And then uh, the sign of the cross coming up. The sign of the cross came out right before uh, Island of Lost Souls. Lost Souls, I don't know, yeah, where he's uh, Emperor Nero and is very. Uh, he takes the pre-code as far as that code could go in that movie, and uh, it was a marvelous performance in that one. Yeah, I've never known Charles Lawton to do a bad performance, at least that I've seen. You know, it's it's in, in any of his work. And the scene. Yeah, even even the strange door, you can't say that that's a bad performance. Again, with Boris Karloff in 1951, uh, I got that year right. And uh, I mean, because he, he, he's a consummate professional. And, consummate and, professional. And that's what I like with a lot of these actors that we just pointed out. A lot of them, they never mail in a performance that I've seen, you know, in a lot in, in their in their work. Now, some of these actors I've only seen in a few things. So, I, mm-hmm. I, I, but. I think when you have that professionalism, even if the movie ends up being of iffy quality, <laughs> right? You know, your you, your work is still your work. You're still a professional, so you still want to do the job you're right. paid to do. And 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 I think some people will be like, and there are some actors that will that we've seen do work, and they literally are just they just want their name on the marquee, so they're paying them the money, and they don't really care. And I think that's right. bad because years later your your work's still gonna live on and people are gonna look at them and it's like, well why did they think this person was such a good actor? Look at all these bad performances in a row. And then Exactly. Exactly. And you know, just because the movie's not that great, you know, you still want to be a, a person that does well in your craft. At least that that's my yeah. opinion. So <laughs> No, I mean if you wanna if you wanna succeed and stick around in this industry especially so. Um I mean, but then there are those that uh, they don't make uh, their 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 product is uh, subpar, but they make money, so that's why they stick around. But um, but the good ones that you remember because they're good. So. Oh, I agree. And this movie, ninety years old. This this will be coming out in um in twenty twenty two, and it came out in nineteen thirty two. So we're talking about the ninetieth anniversary, and people are still talking about this movie. It's and. And it had that long gap where people thought the movie was lost, and mm-hmm. and then of course they lost the Universal lost the rights to the old Dark House book or whatever, and that ended up being redone as a, as a Hammer film. So there is two versions of the old Dark House out there. Make sure 
you know, when we yeah, people directed number, by William Castle, directed by William Castle for Hamlet. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and and this is the one we're talking about that was James Whale, nineteen thirty-two. So I mean, I'm not going to say what the other ones better or worse than this one because I haven't seen it. So I really can't comment on it, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm thinking of watching it just, you know, just to get an idea of what it is to compare and contrast the two um, to see, you know, which one's better or they could be both. Uh, I can enjoy both. No, I don't know. There really is not much uh, competition to be honest with the hammer. The, ha- the William Castle hammer is a interesting experiment, but like the rewatchability factor, the, the uh, the charm, the performances, the everything that makes the old dark house the old dark house is not there in the William Castle film. It's an interesting piece, a harmless little film. It it just it lacks all of the magic that the thirty two uh, version has. Uh, it's not even it's not even really the same story if you really get down to the the nineteen sixty three remake. And like, and you've seen it, so I haven't. So I'm really, like I said, I can't really comment much about it. I've, I've no people have mixed feelings with it going in, and, and the only thing I, I mean, obviously for listeners, I recommend people see this film. And the only thing I would say is, be careful. I think for some people, because everybody hears about this classic, 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 and it's great. And just remember, you you don't want to build something up with your expectations to be too high. You know, go in. And enjoy because it, it is it is a ninety year old film. So if you're not used to watching films of different generations, different decades, you know there could, there's difference in the style, and the pacing, and that kind of stuff. And but I think if you if you're the type of movie lover that loves cinema, you'll love this film. But uh, but for listeners that that want to give it a try, just you know go in with an expectation. You know, like you would normally go for a film that you've never seen before. And I think you'll have a way more enjoying thing where if you're going with the bar too high, then, you know, I think, I think that affects a lot of times the different films. Cause you know, if people go with a bar way high and then they're like, Oh, it was, it was good, but it wasn't great. Right. Or in that kind of thing. Right. And obviously I know you love this film. Yeah. I, I definitely enjoy this film. Um, and I, I watch it. I admittedly, I'm not watching my universal monster movies. Uh, this, October, I'm as I said, I'm busy prepping a film to shoot next month. You know, amen. Um, but uh, I'm planning to save it for all of my Universal monsters around the Christmas and do a, a marathon then and, and, and uh, include the old Dark House. But I've enjoyed this film since I was a kid, and it's, it's bizarre qualities and and uh, overall just atmosphere and. Uh, it's a, it's. I think it is one of the the better pictures of uh, Universal's Gothic from the 1930s, alongside the Black Cat and the Invisible Man and the Bride Frankenstein, obviously. And it's just an underrated, an underrated fun stormy night romp, uh, is how I would explain it. I think, I think, I think that um, hits the nail on the head because if you go in, it's going to have the spooky elements. It's going to have the comedic elements. It, it's 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 family it's family friendly so anybody of any age can really watch this and get something out of it something to cling to there's no there's nothing to me that's that would, except for the very very young that anything that would really scare you know some, except somebody that's extremely young 
Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's, even then, I don't think so. I mean, it's what we see on television and cartoons and just the internet today. I don't think there's anything. The very young will probably be like, "Why isn't this in color?" Like that. That'll probably scare them more than in any of the content in the actual film. Sadly, um, but uh, but it's I still I still think that it should be enjoyed. And um, there's there's enough weirdo little kids out there that enjoy classic horror that would appreciate this. Um, and now with the the 4K restoration and the Blu-ray, um, it's just there's it's never looked as magnificent as it does now. And uh, it's really one of James Whale's, I think, finer, finer movies from the few that I have seen. Um, and uh, and that's my pitch. <laughs> and um, and um, Ansel, you know, before we wrap up anything, uh, obviously you're a filmmaker. You've done, like we said, Loon Lake, Will and Liz, the Dr. Mabuse films, and lots of others. Where can listeners go to follow more about your work that's coming up? Because obviously you got something in production in November of 2021. This will be coming out in um, next year. You know, this will be coming out in 2022, this episode. So um, so sometime, I guess, next year, this whatever you're working on will be coming more close, getting closer to becoming out to the public. Where can people follow to see what, what it is you are working on, what it can be talked about? <laughs> yeah. Uh you can check out my website, hollinsworthproductions.com, H-O-L-L-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H, productions. I only spell it out because everybody adds a G, and that's incorrect. And uh, you can find, um, uh, I've got three films streaming now, uh, Moon Lake, Will and Liz, and The Last Case of August T. Harrison are all streaming on Amazon, Tubi TV, um, a few other platforms to get me at the moment. Uh, you can also check out some of my short films that are hosted on YouTube. Uh, everything is basically accessible from my Homes with Productions website. And uh, a couple of my works are on DVD and Blu-ray. We've got uh, uh, Theater Fantastique, my anthology series is available on DVD. Uh, the Detective Adam Stare Chronicles on DVD. Loon Lake, Will and Liz. Uh, Dr. Mabuza will be out on Blu-ray. Um, yeah, every, just just go to my website, HollandsWithProductions.com. There's there's plenty there. Even I can't remember what's all there. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, that's uh, you, also you can try to find uh, it on Facebook and YouTube again, Collins with Productions. And um, I'm also I have a film column in We Belong Dead magazine, which is Ansel's Asylum for the Psychotronics. And lately, I've been writing the a very sort of personally subjective history of horror from 1931 to 1983 and um showcasing my extensive uh home video collection as part of that uh history dissertation but i'm probably going to branch off into other subjects and uh in the in the magazine column but so, yeah and then i'm prepping a film for next month and it's a bit different from my other work. And I'm very excited because it's been three years since I directed Loon Lake and I need to make a film again. And so here we are. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> and listeners, just so, like I said earlier, um, you can go back into um, our older episodes. I have an interview with Ansel Farage, also other actors that have worked with him, um, Nathan Wilson, 
um, David Selby, uh, um, Hewlett. What's Shulet's first name? A lot of people, yeah. Even you can't remember them. So. <laughs> oh, I can't remember them all. And you know, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just amazing. You know, but there's a bunch of them. <laughs> half of the cast of Dark Shadows and half of the independent actors of Los Angeles, they're on there. Yes, so. and, um, it, and 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 you know, and the thing is, is we don't just talk about the movies. We talk a lot about. Well, actually, if you're interview, I think we talked mostly just about the movies. Um, but for their interviews, we talked a lot about different things that led them to get to those different spots and, um, and those right. kind of things. Cause I always feel when I talk to a director, I can get the more in the nuts and the bolts of the movie. Cause you are like the, um, the, the, the field marshals, the generals, the, um, the captains of the team, so to speak. And so you usually know the inertia of what went into the film and all the other stuff where the actors, um, they do the part, but it's like showing up to work, you do the thing. And then you might, you, they were never working with other people, but I don't ask them for like all the little details on the set because it makes it a little tougher. Right. Yeah. But for listeners, we are. Yeah. yeah you go. Oh no. I was, I was agreeing with you. Yeah. We're uh, directing is we, uh, we tell ourselves that we're playing God and uh, when no one is looking, we're crying in our, into our pillow. Just film directing. <laughs> yep. And Ansel, thank you for joining me to, to help continue this retrospective. Thank you for having me, Stephen. I hope that I was coherent and stayed on topic as best as possible. And, uh, it, and uh, yeah, it was fun. And, and thank you again. And listeners, um, I hope you enjoyed this episode of James Earl Retrospective. Stay with us. The next episode will either be a movie decided by the roll of a die, an interview, or the continuation of the James Earl retrospective. But for now, we've reached the end of this journey with the old dark house. Everybody have a good night, stay safe, and do something fun tonight. Hi, this is Anvil Farage, and I'd like to invite you to check out my film, Loon Lake, a folk horror thriller based on the Minnesota ghost story of Mary Jane, the Witch of Loon Lake, streaming now on Tubi TV and Amazon Prime. Starring David Selby and Catherine Lee Scott of Dark Shadows, Nathan Wilson and Kelly Kitko, and directed by myself. It's also available on special edition Blu-ray and DVD, which you can order from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Best Buy, and Oldies.com, where you can also check out several other of my releases on DVD, such as The Nighttime Winds, Theater Fantastique, The Dr. Mabuza Collection, and The Last Case of August T. Harris. I hope you check out my film, Loon Lake, and I hope you enjoy it. You believe this is a test? I must believe it. There's no witch. She's just some poor girl. I will come to you in three days' time. does crazy things. Check it all out at hollandsworthproductions.com H-O-L-L-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H productions.com and enjoy Loon Lake.